0: You are listening to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and role-playing gamers. On the Shoulders of Dwarves. Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the people who play them. My name is Iran Aviram.
1: And my name is Uri Lifshitz. Hello.
0: Uh, And today we have a guest. Please introduce yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Dee. I'm a writer at Gnomes too, and I'm on Twitter
0: gnome stew is a blog where you can find the best or some of the best or many of the best role-playing game articles uh how long has it been running like i want to say since 2006 maybe a gazillion amount of years yes
1: from the age of the gods
0: Also, there are some of the people there are behind some of the books that we like best, like Odyssey, A Guide to a Campaign and Never Unprepared, A Guide for Being Prepared. Some of the great, great books of, I do believe they are called Engine Publishing. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I don't think do you have anything to do with that specifically?
2: I don't, but how I ended up getting part of Gnome Stew was that I messaged the guy from Engine Publishing being like, I really love your books, and they're like, hey, Mm. you really like GMing? Uh, Gnome Stew's <laughs> looking for writers, so
0: message them. So, and that's sort of how we got here. That's not how I know you, D. I I know you from long ago, almost a year and a half back. Yeah, a
2: bit, yeah. When
0: I was looking for uh, writers for uh, Crystal Heart, for, to write some one-shots for the Kickstarter as uh, stretch goals, and I don't remember how we got to you, but ever since then, we've been talking. Yeah. And so, I got to see your articles on Gnome Stew, and... One of your recent ones called The Anatomy of the GM Curse made its way to the Israeli scene, role-playing scene, of course. Israel is not a big place. Um, it's not as if there are a gazillion different uh, forums. There's basically a single group on Facebook <laughs> for role-playing <laughs> games.
1: Yep. It's called the Israeli Role-Playing Group. Ta-da! Indeed.
0: And I wasn't the, pa- the person who shared your article there. It was shared by someone else. And they started the discussion and it continued on until I realized we really should bring you on to talk about it. That's amazing. And, and then we thought we really should talk about the thing that they've talked about there, which is the concept of the guiding action. Now, this is not a literal translation of something that has existed in the Hebrew-speaking scene for several years now, and it's a concept that I haven't yet seen elsewhere, and I've been looking for it. There's a lot of types of role-playing game theory around the world, a lot Mm -hmm. of aspects, a lot of ways to look at it, and generally speaking, one of the main things they talk about in Israel is a guiding action. And I would like to explain what it is and how it goes back into the anatomy of the GM curse. Mm -hmm. What is the GM curse that you've described?
2: The GM curse, as I defined it in my article, is a speech act or action designed to make someone, one of your players, apprehensive about the current situation. To question to think wait why is the gm laughing to themselves why are they uh, rolling dice behind the screen and to make them think wait is there something i need to know or be aware of right now
0: and that's clever because it's not just telling the player there is something you need to be aware of right now it's doing an action non-verbal
1: mm-hmm. or verbal
0: that is translated in the player's mind into some sort of a thought some sort of emotion which then makes them make a different decision compared to if you would just told them you need to uh, think about this again that will create a different type of game so a guiding action we will define here as an action that powerfully affects a game experience for some or all of the players and why powerfully because every action affects something that happens on the table if i turn to my friends and say hey can you pass the chips from the other side of the table that affects the game for them for me and probably for other people if it was in the middle of a speech or something but maybe if it's not in the middle of the speech maybe if we're currently just looking at our pages and thinking what to do this round maybe it does not powerfully affect anything even though it's exactly the same action so it's timing in this case that matters. But other things matter as well. For example, if the GM just looks at you compared to start collecting dice from around the table because he needs all of the D8s (laughs) for something, the second one powerfully affects the game in some way. So this is a very general thing. And more importantly, you might have noticed, dear listeners, this is not a GM-exclusive thing. Because, and that's the most important thing here, anyone can make a guiding action. The GM is just a person that we sort of count on, we sort of perceive automatically as the person who is in charge of making guiding action. But we are all making them. They can be done consciously, like what most of the GM does, although the GM, because of their status, everything they do almost is a guiding action. Even if they are not aware of it, even if they are doing so without intention but it's the same for everyone else on the table. It's just that most players are not aware of their power, of their ability to guide, and so their guiding actions are usually reflexive. It's something that just comes up. So, here are some examples for what it is that we actually refer to when we say a guiding action. Putting on some music is a guiding action. If the GM um, uses some sort of a soundboard, for example. But putting on a specific music in order to engage specific emotions, like something tense, because that will make the player feel tense. That's a more, I would like to say, elaborate action. It has more power. It eventually will result in a more powerful effect on the gaming experience.
2: I actually just released another article I called Making Moodless, the idea is that I have playlists of 20 different moods as the forest mood or the happy city mood or one mood I call the holy palace that just plays very religious, very, oh, hymn. Mm-hmm. And so I don't pick particular songs. I just put on the mood when a scene changes.
0: We'll, of course, give a link to that article in the show notes and also to Tabletop Audio, which is Uri's in mine preferred. Mm. It's well, automatically my mind goes when I think about uh, background music. Uh, they have something like that.
1: Because there is someone who already did most of the hard work and you simply pick, <laughs> uh, oh, Haunted Castle. Yeah, that's the mood I'm going for. doesn't matter that we're in the middle of a tavern. I want them to feel tense, so uh, mm. Desperate Graveyard. Yeah, that's the one.
0: But I'd like to continue on to some less obvious actions, like, for example, ignoring a player. This is something we've talked about when we had the episode about the spotlight, when we said the GM has a lot of power to control the spotlight, and one of their ability is to control the amount of attention they give to something, because where they look generally speaking, is where the spotlight currently is. So if a player is rushing forward and, and not exactly shouting, but they are all there in the, on the table and they always want the attention, by ignoring the player, the GM has creates a powerful effect on the experience, allowing someone else to play instead. And what the player is doing, by the way, is a guiding action as well. Maybe reflexively, maybe they are not aware of it, but by trying to pull all of the attention to them, they are saying, in a way, I want to control the narrative and what we are currently doing and what is currently happening around the table. And that is a powerful effect on the game's experience.
1: You say control the narrative and people reflexively react like, oh, wow, that's like taking away the... But it's not that big of a deal. It could simply mean, hey, I would like to focus on this specific moment or this specific emotion or this specific process that my character is currently undergoing and that's a very legitimate thing for a player to do
2: i play with a lot of younger people so i've had groups of new players where they will spend anywhere up to like five to ten minutes trying to make vaping rolls and (laughs) and that takes over the narrative or i want to check uh if this person is like lit with my butt and i'm like Those cases, I've definitely ignored a player, just like move on. It's like, yes, okay, let's go.
0: Sure. Also, for example, addressing the least active player, specifically them, addressing them and asking them, what do you want to do? Or describing the situation specifically to them and saying, what do you want to do? That's, That's a powerful guiding action that a GM who is aware of it can and probably should use. But let's go back to the players. A player can, for example, have their character address another player's character. That's super, super duper simple. But let's think about a powerful way to do it to influence the game. You can do so to give them the spotlight. This is something we talked about on the spotlight episode. Uri loves doing it. When Uri sees that another player is... Currently out of the scene, his character doesn't have anything to do right now and Uri would like to give them more power. Uri will play as his character and address that player's character to pull them in. And that's a guiding action. It makes that character now part of the narrative. It forces them to react in some way and to say something, to be something, to be in the narrative.
1: That character, but more importantly, that player. The player, yes, for
0: sure. I'll go back for a bit for, to the GM curses article. Giving details is a guiding action. When I say there are three doors in the room, one of them is red, one of them is green, and one of them has an elaborate um, mosaic <laughs> of uh, dwarven <laughs> origin.
1: The large glowing runes that says, for this sure. is where the GM wants <laughs> you to go.
0: That's exactly it. I mean, by giving details, I make something important. That's oh, yeah. again something oh, yeah. we've yeah. talked about before on many episodes. The GM has power to give importance by simply describing stuff. But it goes the other way around. You can obscure a presence of something important by speaking quickly, by passing over it. If you want to make sure that the players are aware that there is a door in the room, but it's not important, that they shouldn't give attention to it, then just... As you go through and describe the ceiling and there's light coming through a skylight and beyond the the vast pool in the floor, you can see a small door on the other side. And as your vision uh, goes to the left, you can see this huge trunk, whatever. There was a door. You've, You've mentioned the door. But it wasn't important, though. So when the orcs stormed through the door later and the players didn't pay attention to it, it's because you sort of convince them in a way not to pay attention to it. And that gave you the room to have somewhere where the orcs can storm through that the players will not look at, will not be ready for. That's a powerful thing to do. Finally, social cues are definitely, definitely a guiding action. And this includes stuff like everything in the GM curse article, I think. Uh, Laughing maniacally behind your screen. (laughs) That's a social cue. It's not something specifically relevant to the game, it I think. just called
1: GMing, I think.
0: <laughs> sure. But I want to talk a bit about something very interesting. I want to continue on to guiding actions that players do on the GM. These are quite powerful indeed, and they are very useful if you are aware of what you're doing. Here's two ways to do the same thing, more or less, but they result in different ways for the story to continue. First, the player approaches me and say, I want to talk to Rudy, the sergeant, about uh, compensation. Uh, the situation is, he's going to hire us for something, etc. Compare that to, I want to talk to Rudy and uh, roll for Hegel to get the best compensation I can. And compare these two to, I turn to Rudy and say, Rudy, come here for a moment. Uh, we need to talk about compensation. It's, uh, it's a pretty big issue. So what's the difference between these three? The first is just a general declaration of intent. It's just what I want to achieve now in the game. And I'm actually giving the reins back to GM and say, you decide how we continue. What does it mean? I just explained what I wanted. In the second one, I want to roll Hegel. I am, as the player saying, I want to make this into a mechanic thing, specifically Hegel, probably because I'm good at it. I want to bring the rules into this discussion right now, into this thing that is happening. Please allow me to do so. I would like to roll. And in the third, I want to portray my character, and I am addressing you, GM, and I am expecting you to address me as Rudy. And now we can talk about compensation. Maybe this will become later a role, maybe not. Maybe I just want to enjoy a bit of roleplay. All of these three different things are in your hands as a player, not in the GM's hands. Uh, eventually, of course, generally speaking, everything is in the GM's hands. But let me tell you a secret. GMs are not super aware of everything happening all the time. If you are guiding them towards something, they will most likely, unless it goes against their intent and something that they are aware of and are looking forward into bringing into the game, they will just go with you and will just flow. Everything will happen as you desired and will just continue forward.
1: I think there's something even more potent to be said here. GMs, as a rule may have a specific game or experience that they want to pass on to their players, but they don't necessarily know what's interesting for the players, (laughs) what the players really want to focus on. So when a player performs a guiding action, that's usually a very strong way of telling the game master, listen, here is something that I want either that will happen or that I want to focus on and give more room. Exactly. Of course the GM can retaliate by saying no, and there are many cases in which the GM should say no. Like Dee pointed out a few moments <laughs> ago, there are many points in which the GM should say uh, no, or let's move on, or we don't have time for this, or excellent, let's continue this after the session, etc., etc. But again, this is an amazing tool for players to indicate to the GM what they want to see in the game.
0: As we talked about on the episode on pacing, In a way, the thing that GM is really responsible for, probably, is pacing. Mm -hmm. And keeping track of the fictional narrative so everything remains true. The GM is the final arbiter on what is true. But we are free as players to suggest, and we are free as players to push toward different directions. And if we are aware of our ability to suggest what is fun for us, just suggest, go for it. The worst case scenario, the GM will say, no, we have no time for it, or no, I'm playing something else. But if you will not suggest... How will you get your fun?
2: One thing that um, worked out for me, as maybe this is a, like a guiding action as well, but when I do get players that kind of want to take up a lot of room and you know make a bunch of rolls that don't necessarily matter, like I'm going to check that mm. I'm, I'm going to constantly check for this, constantly check for this. I do the insta pass. Just yeah, it immediately passes. Don't make a roll. Let's move on.
0: Just.
1: Uh-huh. Phew,
0: for sure. In many of my games, we only roll if it's interesting or dangerous. Right. And I'm the arbiter of when to roll, and I default to don't roll unless failure is interesting. And that requires me to think about each and every roll before something happens. If, for example, you want to tell me I'm searching the room, sure. How long are you searching the Where are you searching? And there might be no need for a perception roll, just all the other way around. Sure, are you searching Roll role perception. You did it, you didn't do it, okay, fine, let's continue. But if you failed, you will still find something that is interesting that will push us forward.
1: I oftentimes, when I GM, sort of count what I call empty rolls. It's when you roll the dice for no reason whatsoever. Because the more empty rolls I perform as a GM will create more tension on the Mm. player side. So I always have this internal counter which how much empty rolls I'm performing in order to increase the tension before a really important scene, shall we say. Or if I just want to get the players paranoid. Okay, you're walking down the hall, two empty rolls. Nothing (laughs) happens. You you keep going. And the pacing here, the amount of empty rolls rolled, is a very simple formula to how long can you push this before before the players become numb to that effect.
2: Oh, absolutely. Like... When I was talking a little bit about GMing act, uh, like GM curses, part of it is you only have so much room to do a single act multiple times before the players just realize, oh, you're just messing around with us or, oh, this actually doesn't matter and hasn't affected mm. us just yet. You can't, you can't keep fishing and the fish never bite.
0: This segues brilliantly to my last point before we continue on to Uri's, which is how all of this is, in a sense, manipulation. You're manipulating the other participants around the table. And I've seen this before when we talked about subjects like this on the internet, on the English speaking internet. People accused us of being manipulative and trying to push the players' mindset without them being aware. And I say, yes, yes, in a way, yes, of course, um, this is drama. This, you've just described drama. Drama is uh, an attempt by a creator to, through fictionalized storytelling, uh, evoke specific emotions without you realizing it, that is happening. Uh, whatever the medium is. Now, in writing, the writer will write something, and through subtext or whatever will manipulate the audience. In role-playing games, because we participate as both creators and audiences, It is super weird, everything is strange. And so yes, while it's true that we can use guiding actions to manipulate each other without noticing, we are also able to listen to this episode that we are currently listening to and become aware of them and then start using them and hopefully be able to be affected by them in a mature consenting way that, and we say to ourselves, ah, mm, nice what you did there. Mm, Good, right, yeah. I agree, or I disagree, or whatever, this is now happening.
2: I have to work a lot on the whole manipulation thing. I really try to ham up this whole persona of me GMing like a villain, like a bad person, being, like, coming off like an adversary to players. And I get told that it's kind of manipulative. But I think about this one game, I think they're, like, a game producer... Yokotaro, they created this game called Nier Automata, and his mm. way of storytelling is completely different from like regular like hero circle three act whatever. But yes, he writes his stories being I have this one sad scene in mind, and all of the story up until that point is building up to that one sad scene, and you're going to hurt and. It Yes, you can call it manipulation because they're just trying to evoke emotions out of you to the most they can. But it's just drama. It's just storytelling.
0: That's manipulation. Yeah. I think that when we say manipulation with a negative connotation is that is when we don't expect It's when someone is shifting our emotions in some way and we did not want this to happen. If I go to the cinema and I come out of it crying or laughing or whatever... I liked it. I I wanted this to happen. I went in because I wanted to be manipulated. I will not appreciate it if someone later on gaslight me while I'm drinking in the pub with them and will shift my emotions in some way while they are playing me like a puppet. So... I think that the best way for us as participants in role playing game to continue on forward is saying yes of course this is manipulation that's drama let's expect this let's be aware of it
1: I think there's a huge divide here between people who treat role playing games as nothing but games and people who treat role playing games as a form of art we take for granted that when we encounter art one of the purposes of said art is to influence us as the consumer of that art. If I'm watching a movie and it makes me sad, I'm not saying, oh, the director tricked me again into feeling this emotion of sadness. Damn him. No, I'm saying, oh, that was a great movie. It made me feel things. But usually when I play a game, I don't think, oh, okay, that game made me sad. I was manipulated. Mm -hmm. And we should consider that role-playing is largely a form of art. It's a collaborative storytelling. It's a story, a narrative that we take part in. And as such, we shouldn't be in any way surprised that it affects us emotionally. And yes, most of these guiding actions manipulate us in an emotional level in some way. And that's not a bad thing. Like you mentioned, this is art. Art influences people. And I think the only one are caught unaware by this is the people who say, no, this is a role-playing game. And by game, we mean that it's just that. It's something that we take part in, not something we are affected by.
0: That we're here only to slay some monsters, um, loot some uh, dungeons, uh, go through some adventures. Which is fine. It, it's fine. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a completely fair way to play role-playing game if you want to.
1: Yeah, but I disagree there because if I go hack and slash, go through a dungeon, kill the boss and get loot, I'm happy. Okay, I'm very happy after one of those games. <laughs> and that's also about. manipulation. Yes, that's an emotional yes. manipulation to get me to feel a sense of accomplishment, which makes me happy, which get me to come back and play that game again.
0: I think that there's a lot of guiding actions in that sort of game as well. Yeah. Maybe they're just a bit different.
2: Locally, we call that a pub game or some... Like a game, you sit down, you have a beer, and you have snacks, and you're mostly there to be like, I'm here to fight, I'm here to drink, and I'm here to laugh with my friends. Yeah. And those are just fine. Ah.
0: I know them by the name Beer and Pretzel Game. Ah, and yeah. There are, there are some role-playing games that are especially designed for this sort of play and good for them.
2: When you take damage, take a shot.
1: Hey! Uh, I would play that. I would play that right now. Wait a moment.
0: <laughs> um, Uri, there's a game that you created that is sort of like that, remember?
1: I want to say first and foremost that I recognize two different kinds of guiding action. One of them is where you, as either a game master or a player, use game elements to shape the experience that one or more of the people around the table are experiencing. This is using actual parts of the game mechanics. A lot of these elements are things that might be regular parts of the game, but because of either their timing or the way you use them, you create a different experience. I think the most blatant example is what I've just mentioned before and about empty rolls. Rolling a die is simply part of the game. When I use it to create a different experience, I am performing a guiding action. Asking for clarification from a player is something that I as a GM might do simply because I haven't heard them, I didn't understand what they were planning to do, etc., etc. But if I ask repeatedly for clarification, I have used a regular element that usually happens during the game around the table, and I have used it to create a different experience. If D, for example, would say, fine, I charge the orc horde and yell obscenities, it's very likely that I would say, no, just, just to get that straight, D, you're just running toward the horde, you alone against the army. <laughs> okay, that is great. Or I can also say, okay, just just to make sure I heard you correctly, because that is insane, you're running, just you, your character, toward the huge horde covering the sky, and you're just running toward those flying orcs, alone yelling obscenities. Did I get that trait?
2: So, like, I have done that, but I had a flying broom, thank you very much.
1: (laughs) I haven't (laughs) doubted you for a moment there.
0: But just to note, you can also go with stuff like, Awesome. Amazing. What are you getting? What obscenities? And that's also a guiding action. That's one that builds up on the tension. It's one that empowers and, and makes it so we are all more excited about, why, about what is happening.
1: Yes, it reminds me, Dee, that after I read your article, I really, really loved it. But I kind of had that one thing which I very strongly disagreed with, and that you use GM curses. And I thought, no, there's so many GM blessings as well. Why why aren't we talking about them? About the, mm-hmm, or the, oh, wow, that's awesome. Or, hell yeah, get a plus one for that. Or, all those uh, GM blessings of sort.
2: After being approached by all of you and talking about how guiding actions were a thing in the Israeli gaming community and such, I realized that GM curses is just potentially just like a small part of like, this larger act of playing. And I think that's fascinating to me. Um, Of course, yeah, there's GM blessings. There's ways to hype up your players. But I mostly want to specifically talk about GM curses because it's something that you hear a lot or see in role-playing communities, specifically meme communities.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: Yeah, definitely. Going back on track... The second type of guiding action is using elements which are external to the game, to the game mechanics, to the game elements, in order to shape the experience of the people around the table. And I intentionally use people around the table and not GMs or player because, like we've mentioned, guiding actions can be performed by either and can affect either one. And when I say Elements external to the game, I mean things like music, but we can go even further than that. The lighting of the room, using candle, using different coloration. We're also talking about non-gaming paraphernalia props. For example, using miniatures and specialty dice would be one thing, but I would argue that if one of the players get the engraved sword of Hazelbomb. If you take out an actual large sword and give it to the player, that creates a whole different experience. Or simply, if there's a magic talisman that is very important to the plot, to have an actual physical talisman for the player whose character actually using the pendant to actually have on. Again... Create a whole different experience and there's such a huge range here the scents in the room if you want to light up some scented candles the sitting order specific drinks external activities like LARPing some scenes or staring disapprovingly at someone these are all elements which are potentially not part of a regular gaming session and simply bringing them inside the context of a gaming session is a guiding action.
0: Very much agreed. Let us continue D. We've brought you as a guest and yet uh, you've mostly talked uh, with us. It's time for us to talk with you. What do you have to say? <laughs>
2: um so I love the concept of guiding actions mostly because I think it really adds in a level of subtlety to the whole game. There's a big difference between saying, "Oh, before you leave this room, you should search again" versus saying you have a sense of unease as you leave the room. And I think the biggest difference is how blunt versus how solid you are. I think it kind of sets this tone that you need to search this room again, because it is an obstacle to your progress. You need to do this. And I'm saying this in that players can easily identify it or accuse it of role as railroading, but In a a way, it kind of locks players to the checking what you need and want them to check because (laughs) I'm so clever. I'm the GM. You shouldn't leave until you find the bait I put out for you. Hmm. But the latter, the whole you have a sense of unease as you leave the room becomes foreshadowing. In a story it can bite them back on the butt because they didn't search this room. They weren't able to find this, the mystical amulet, the sword that they needed to uh, defeat the vampire king. And it feels more deserved for them to have not checked the room because they definitely missed that. And when the player goes, aha, right, we should have checked that very suspicious place. It gave them the option to fumble, telling them that, Maybe they should have checked this place, but it doesn't push them to saying, you have to look at this. And I've had the type of GM that would tell me to not leave a room until I've searched for everything.
1: And I just, mm. I've had that.
0: And I wanted to say that I'd get the option to fumble. I think that's an amazing insight here. That's really important.
1: Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head here by iterating that you should search again is something that the GM tell their players you have a sense of unease as you leave the room is something that the GM is describing an emotion coming from the characters to the attention of the players. Mm. This is something that you as a player feel, oh, my character feel a sense of unease. This is because my character is such an awesome adventurer slash whatever. This is not because the GM is dying for me to find the sword so he wouldn't TPK us in the next room.
0: When at one episode we talked about fictional truths and facts and we talked a bit about epistemology and we said how you should, as a GM, generally talk to the characters, not the players. So what the characters feel and sense and let the players interpret that. I think it was on the episode about mystery when we said to keep a mystery, don't tell them what is, tell them what they sense is. And it's important here as well. It's the same thing going on here. And here we see it's coming from a very different direction. And it's super-duper useful here without any... It, it doesn't matter if we're playing in a mystery game. It doesn't pl- matter if you're trying to uh, achieve some sort of atmosphere or whatever. Here it's just a better way to let the players experience the current moments and maybe search again. <laughs>
2: this is why I think this somewhat leads into why I wanted to define the GM curse in the first place because I think it's really important to be able to talk about things the GM community isn't academic by any means it is bardic It is people Mm. are constantly sharing their tools, their tricks of what things they have done and how they work and what you should expect when they happen but I guess I wanted to like bring it into more of a discussionary light here with you people. By giving it a name, GM Curse, Guiding Action, we're now yeah. able to talk about it. Exactly. Without saying, oh, that thing that the GMs do, you know, when they uh, laugh maniacally, you know, that whole thing.
0: That's exactly why I think Gnome Stew is consistently, for years, one of the best blogs around. And unsurprisingly, why they are the guys that published all of these amazing books, which are, in a way sort of canonizing this GM knowledge. And again, not academic, but books are uh, forever, in a way. And they allow all of us to look at a thing and say, ah, it's like, it's like this. This is the thing. It appears in this book, and it's uh, defined in this way. So yeah, I think that generally speaking, we are, as time goes on, we are getting better as GMs and as understanding things. And the, I mean, this hobby exists for what 40 years it's not a lot and i think that with books like those from engine publishing we might see things like guiding actions or the like becoming a normal thing that you would put in a rule book in maybe hopefully 20 years something like that
2: <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't actually mind if we just get more books that detail and list these sort of things i I have a lot of GMing books that have certain topics that I'd never considered before. And in a way, by writing these books, it can make it, push it a bit more into some sort of academic idea. Yeah. Because I teach, like, uh, GMing locally and in some, like, conventions and such. Mm-hmm. So I need to be able to define these things in order to share it better.
0: Yes.
1: yes it makes definitely. it academic. I think I only came across one... Adventure in which they actually detail a guiding action in a in a profound way. Uh, it was in um, Rise of the Rune Lord, the Paizo mm. adventure path. Mm. There was a trap that get you hooked on endlessly reading some sort of library or something, and there's actually a few paragraphs describing it, telling the GM, listen. Tell your players that they feel that they're like 10 minutes away from deciphering the whatever the cause for this terrible thing that happened here. And ask them for a role for those 10 minutes. And whatever the role is... Tell them, it's not quite there, but you're a little bit closer. (laughs) You think it's maybe a matter of a few more minutes, maybe an hour, and ask them to roll again. And no no matter what the results are, (laughs) tell them, oh, you're so close, you're so close, but I'm going to give you an extra roll for that. (laughs) So, you know, and the whole point is that the characters are hooked and endlessly keep pondering the library.
2: Fascinating. Yes,
1: and I fell for it like a tuna in the middle of a snowstorm.
0: Okay, guys, this has been going on for far too long. It is time to (laughs) summarize. Uh, I don't think we have a lot to say that we haven't talked about already. So let's give a few links. Let's give a few shout outs to um, just sum it all up. I would give a link to the Israeli role-playing group. It's in Hebrew, of course. But it's the link where I ask them, guys, what is a guiding action? Can you please describe it to me? Because uh, you, you are the guys that in, for the past 10 or 15 years have tried to understand what it is and define this. And they answered. And all of the people that contributed, thank you. And there will be a link in the show notes. And we used um, many of the answers there to get to our own definition and formalize this into something that we can talk about here. We'll also give a link, of course, to this article on Omstew, the Anatomy of the GM Girls, it's not very long, uh, highly recommended, because it's, it just lists a few good things you should think about, and it just gives a few pros and cons. I disagree with them, but it's a different matter. <laughs> and and uh, finally, I also want to give a link to another article from Gnome Studio. It was published about like eight years ago, something like that. It's called Israeli Tabletop, the Three Flavors of Delta Green. And it's one in which Chagael Kayam, who was here like... An episode so ago, go, yeah. yeah, when we <laughs> talked about politics, wrote an article meant for the English-speaking public in which he tries to describe what is an Israeli tabletop game and, among other things, talk about guiding actions sort of during it. And it's a good read if you're curious about what is the deal with the Israeli scene. Of course, you can also just go to the link for the group and ask there. Most of us speak English, obviously.
1: I need to read this.
0: Uh, Your The links will be in the show notes.
1: Health. And maybe we'll try and get a more organized list of guiding actions and suggested possibilities to use them. I'm definitely going to make an effort and formalize that. Good luck with that.
0: Uh, Good luck. Dee, it's time to plug some things. Where can we find you on the internet?
2: Okay, so my main source of contact, you can hit me up on my Twitter at dice. Q-G-M, that's D-I-C-E, Q-G-M. I have a blog, The Dice Queen. There I have a collection of open SRDs, like system reference documents, of just like 60 plus free games, so you don't have to break bank to get into tabletops for the first time. I'm also recording and just actually finished recording the first arc for this podcast, Actual Play, Thing I do called Epithet RPG I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in Taking the Load Off but yeah, Epithet RPG
0: How do you spell epithets?
2: Epithet E-P-I-T-H-E-T
0: Nice, RPG, RPG. And now it's time to this take the load off is carried on the shoulders of the war. This is the part of the show in which we talk about role-playing games in our personal lives. And because we have a guest, the guest will talk about role-playing games in our personal lives. But it can be anything, anything. Uri and I talk about our last week. I'll I'll begin. I'll begin. My thing is that in a week, probably, I'm going to return to play 50 Fathoms. (gasps) After, I think, nine months or something like that. My wife has finally finished writing a book. Good for her. It's an amazing, brilliant, giant ...giant piece of of, of literature about... Actually, it's about literature. Uh, and it will be out in like two years from Bloomsbury, the ...and then you'll hear from it again. But for now, she has Sundays available again... ...and we'll be turning to 50 Fathoms. And just in time, Pinnacle Entertainment released a conversion to Suede... ...for the new edition of Savage World. So I can now use 50 Fathoms as intended without having to do the trans- translations myself, which is good because I'm not really good with translation between systems, which is a problem when I'm running Pathfinder 1 adventures in Pathfinder 2 on my Tuesday nights, but that's a different thing, that's a different, we'll get to that in a later day. Uh, Uri, what have you been doing?
1: Wow, um, I have a birthday in about a week. Yay! So Ooh. last night, we had a, the Pathfinder party, we had a birthday dinner, and we have this rule, whoever has his birthday after this session gets to decide on what we're eating. So there was a huge mountain of schnitzels, uh,
0: hey. per
1: my request, and this huge three layers of chocolate cake. Three layers? Which was three layers of chocolate. I, don't, I, I, I have been blessed by the gods of roleplay. I can't even begin. But this morning, I was playing my d 5th edition game. And it suddenly occurred to me why I enjoy my D&D 5th edition game so much. And the reason is that I don't know the rules that well. Hmm. And let me explain. We came across some fey creatures, elves specifically. And our wizard was about to cast sleep on them. And we had this moment in which I thought, hmm. Now, I've been playing... I think seven different editions of D&D by now. <laughs> and most in most of them elves were immune to sleep effects.
0: Seven editions? No no, he's he's I think I think <laughs> might be exaggerating
1: a bit. No, a, a bit because you know there's D&D AD&D AD&D second edition etc etc.
2: 3.0, 3.5, 3.75, I mean yeah.
1: Pathfinder etc etc. But here's the thing I'm looking at the board, I'm looking at the wizard, and I'm thinking to myself, this is me thinking, not my character, okay, so I've played all these editions of D&D. In most of them, elves were immune to sleep effects. But in some, they weren't. And I'm not that familiar with 5th edition. And I can't for the life of me remember if in this edition... Elves are immune to sleep effects or not. So in my mind, it's like, okay, so my character has heard a legend saying that elves are immune to sleep effects. I have no idea if that's true. Neither me nor my character. And that is why I enjoy 5th edition so much. Mm. Because so many of it is new to me. Because I read the GM guide very briefly just to get the sense of what's new And it's even worse because most of the rules that I remember is because I played during the beta of 5th edition.
0: Ah, And I don't
1: know how many of the rules which I played by are actually in the finalized product. Not a lot. Not a lot, no. So a lot of things really catch me by surprise. And that's something that doesn't happen to me often in role-playing game Because I usually read rule books cover to cover. And then immediately pretend to play all the characters and all classes so I will know what's going on. Nice. And that didn't happen with 5th edition. So I enjoyed so much from the sense of mystery that I get. Nice.
2: I'm completely the opposite. I, I was able to fake knowing how to play 5e for four months before my players <laughs> found out. I, I was running a 5th edition game. Ah, okay. <laughs> I had no idea how to play. And the players had no idea.
0: But it's fine because generally speaking, in 5th edition, choose an attribute and role.
2: Yeah, 20
0: Yeah, and roll D20, and everything you, you, else just comes you, along.
2: You have a sword, uh, D8? That's, that's D8 in the system, right? Okay.
1: <laughs> well, when you said I've been faking it for, for four months, and I'm like, in my head, I see you stepping into this club, and there's a bouncer in the beginning saying, do you know 5th edition? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yep.
2: Here's my fake 5th uh, edition ID.
1: <laughs> Fine, go in. And like four months after, like someone asks you, so... How do will-saves work? And you're like, there's a will-save? There ah, you're not getting into a, there the There isn't a
0: will-save, Ruby. <laughs> there Ubi. isn't a will-save. I know, <laughs>
1: I, I know. That's what
0: I'm saying. That playing.
2: caught me. That did catch me. That did catch me one time. Okay. It did. Um, I like roll will-save.
0: What's a will-save? D. what about you? What are you taking the load off?
2: I recently finished the first arc for my podcast The adventure, Epithet RPG. So it's based off this setting called Epithet Race by this YouTuber, Jello Apocalypse. Essentially, people have words attached to their soul like one in five so someone could have the word explosive attach your soul which lets them effectively do magic in the world but you might not get a good word like uh ah. one, of the, one of the characters in the actual show has the epithet soup so he throws soup <laughs> at
1: people Brilliant. i love it <laughs> it sounds amazing yes
2: about when it was like uh five episodes in, I finished up this play doc. So, how to play Epithet Erased through ICRPG or uh, Index Card RPG. It's kind of like my second favorite system right now. Like, just underneath Savage Worlds Adventure. It's, mm. it's amazing. It's,
0: it's it's really good. Yes.
2: I really like fast games. And ICRPG is very fast. It takes D20 systems and just cuts it down to its bare minimum. It is stats and effort. And you just and you, roll, and you use almost every die. So it takes damage and turns it into pretty much anything, if I can say that. So unlocking a chest takes effort or one heart or 10 HP. So when mm. I roll and I succeed to hit uh, the DC of 9, I then roll a d4 to see how far along... Unlocking the chest, I go. Meanwhile, my party is being attacked by orcs and monsters. And I'm like, guys, don't worry. I'm going to unlock this chest. Okay. And D4, D3, okay. D4. Uh, yeah.
0: In a way, it's a, it's a bit like uh, Clocks. Yeah. Okay.
2: It turns damage into progress on a progressing effort.
0: Yeah, okay, nice. I'll give a link to uh, Index Card RPG in the show notes. Yeah. Check it out. It's pretty cheap I think, right?
2: It's there's a free there's a free version of it, the quick start which which will tell you everything you need to know. And I think it's like less than 20 bucks for like the full thing and it's pretty good. I'm a big fan. But yeah, so my adventure it involves a group of people at some mysterious facility that is just researching how epithets come to be, and then this uh, Monday or regular person, a terrorist group pops up and being like, "Hey, we want to steal this amulet that gives people epithets." What up? And it was just a whole adventure. It was really fun to play. Sounds good. And the best part, I ha- the thing I like the most about it is I have. Three of my players are artists, and so uh-huh. I've just I've gone, like, we have up to 65 images in our official art Dropbox right now, and it's amazing. <laughs> they just yes. went ham.
0: Having an artist near the group is the best, <laughs> yes. Oh, three of them. Oh my gosh.
1: I'm still out on whether I prefer to have an artist or a chef, but <laughs> both are both are the, the definitely the best combo
2: an artist chef please
1: Ooh, so you always get cakes with paintings <laughs> of your characters and the scene <laughs> on the cake that's the frosting
0: <laughs> so guys thank you for listening to this if you want to listen to more of this if you want to hear more about what we have to say go to dwarfcast.net or search for dwarf podcast around the internet. Uh, you can also send an email to show at dwarfcast.net in which you can describe, for example, what you think is correct or incorrect about everything we've just said, or anything else. If you have a problem going on in your game, something that some obstacle that you've stumbled upon, uh, send us an email and we will suggest options and solutions or guide you toward a link where you can probably find some sort of solution. Of course, we can also do an episode out of it.
2: And hit me up on Twitter
0: and hit D up on Twitter. D, thank you very much for taking part in this episode.
2: Thanks for having me. This
1: was great. It's been loads of fun.
0: And now we can end every episode by each of us saying goodbye in our native language. Lehitramay! The Dwarves is shared under Creative Commons by attribution and non-commercial form. Intro and outro are by the Cliché Dio. And you can email us at
1: show at dwarfcast.net.
0: On the shoulders of war.